Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. You are somebody else. But if you think long and deeply enough about it, aren't we all one? Mm, the earth, the trees, the grass, the mountains, you, me, your parents, your neighbors. We all inhabit the same small earth planet. Sorry, I was doing a JFK. We all inhabit this same small planet. Anyways, <clears throat> what you do affects me. Maybe not directly, but in some ways, right? Your mood certainly affects the people around you, and then that uh, causes a ripple effect, right? So uh, be kind and rewind. All this to say, I hope that you're doing well, and I hope that uh, other people are in your consideration throughout the day. That's uh, the science that says that's where happiness comes from, is your experience with uh, other people and those dopamines and exchanges and little conversations and dialogue. So put that phone down and go out there and buy a bagel and say, hey, thanks a lot. See you tomorrow. And then have them say, oh, no problem. Um, started doing the accent, thought better of it. So just went kind of lady voice. You know, uh, anyways, if you live in Queens, check out lots of bagels on Broadway. You'll see me there every morning. Anywho, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I hope you're doing well. Had a stressful couple of days, but um, I'm trying to only control what I can control because that's all you can ever do. Let go of everything else. You don't want to be holding that steering wheel too hard. And uh, take the time to recognize what you are able to control which isn't that much, just how you treat people and the things you put into your butthole and the things that come out um, and how kind you are to others and empathetic. And I recommend it because I think that will bring you happiness. And uh, speaking of conversations with other people, interactions with other people, today's guest is my friend, Mike Cannon. You know him? If you don't, you should. You probably do. I feel like the New York comedy scene, people are really starting to know um, New York comics. If they know if they know a few, they start to know all of them. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But I, I highly suggest checking out all these comics I've had on the show. Uh, but this week is Mike Cannon, who's hilarious. Um, he's got a special on YouTube, who I can't remember the name of it right now, but he certainly talks about it towards the end of this. Um, if I took like, a minute to silently sit here, I would probably come up with the name. It's something to do with life. Born, born, death, life, life begins. Fuck. I'll think of it, or you can Google it, and uh, or you'll hear it at the end of the episode. Hopefully you last through this fucking meandering and mumbling that I'm doing and uh, get to it. Anyways, I've known Mike a long time, probably 10 years, I think, or more. I don't know. He's a great comic, great guy. I always like seeing him. And uh, he's a good man and he's a he's an anxious fella. And uh, we, we get into it. We talk father issues and anxiety and stress and all those things. And he's a new parent, which um, he's entering uh, quite a journey, of course. And we discussed that a little bit. Uh, or maybe we discussed it a lot. I don't know. But we talked on a Sunday night and um, I was a little stressed out, but it helped to uh, get out of my stress and talk to him and connect with him. Um, and uh, he was great. It just flew by. That's when I know it. I feel like it's a good episode is when it, it flies by and I felt like we could have gone on for another hour easily. So hopefully I'll have him back on. I've said it before. I think this podcast uh, lends itself to having guests on multiple times. So we'll check in with him again down the road. But for now, uh, enjoy this conversation. Uh, I certainly did with Mike Cannon. And then when you're done, go check out his album, and his special, which uh, he will plug at the end, and you'll know the name officially, but he's terrific, and I highly recommend his comedy. And um, here's a little quote for you that I just heard. I'm going to borrow it from the Calm app, which is an app I highly recommend. And uh, it's similar. I'll give you two quotes, and they're very similar. One, you might recognize from my act, if you're familiar with my act and my late night sets. Allow thoughts to come into your head, but don't serve them tea. And here's another one of the same elk. You can't stop the birds from, 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 I hate myself. 
No, I don't. I love myself. I made a mistake. Mm. I forgive myself. Anyways, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. Hmm? Oh, I really blew it. Here's a conversation with Mike Cannon. Thanks for listening. folks here it is by the way can i just say you're where are you you look like you're in a fucking porn (laughs) den or something what is this the in-laws house or is that your home this is no this is the in-laws house i don't have uh i don't know the the confidence to pull off a nude painting in my own home is it a nude painting i can't really see it is it's a it's a gustav klimt so it is like it's it's supposedly like highfalutin and very artsy, but I mean this entire room is like a Versace satin heel. It look it's it's ridiculous. It's gold. It's red. There's a grand piano in the corner. There's also a six foot tall knight, like an, an a full armored knight in the corner. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. So your in laws have some dough. They do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been learning all about that. I mean, talk about like mental health and shit like that. So I've been here since I would say March 20th, I I think. So we left Brooklyn because we were living in, you know, Crown Heights. And it was kind of uh, during Corona, at least it was still kind of a hotbed because nobody was listening to social distancing. And we had, you know, a gang of bloods literally living on our front stoop and, you know, dealing small amounts of drugs so we didn't want to have to walk through those guys every single day so we kind of hightailed it to the city and our we were able to break our lease and now we're just kind of here hiding out until we're going to look for a place in august oh wow so you're like essentially homeless like not a homeless (laughs) person but without your own home yeah yeah with a baby which is you know super fun fun now where are you guys gonna look have you thought about astoria sagalo's over here i'm over here like feeder so just had I, a kid i know i think i think which looks exactly like him same I mean, height pic- the two- <laughs> just a pocket-sized little jewish boy but um he i think we're looking jackson heights oh okay that's not yeah so so now far. it's like it's so weird dude because you've known me i mean i've known you since i literally started comedy so i am not an adult and now i have to consider schools where i move yeah that's the weirdest part with having kids in new york it's interesting to have like for me i'm like a suburbs guy it's interesting to me the idea of like having a kid and then my kid's like an inner city kid (laughs) after growing up like in the uh suburbs or whatever you grew you're a suburb guy also yeah, I was born in Manhattan and my parents lived in the West Village for the first, you know, a few months of my life. But I think and my father had, you know, worked in the city as a at that time he was an actor slash bartender and then he became a stockbroker. But um they I think <laughs> he got he picked up a, every douchey job along the way. Dude, absolutely classic. He like he, my dad is uh, I mean, that's a whole separate podcast, but he like really gregarious, charismatic, fun guy who, you know, didn't necessarily have the work ethic for acting and couldn't stick it out. He had two kids, all that stuff, then fled for stockbroking where he used his charismatic stuff to manipulate people and then became that kind of hardened douche. Wow. And are you, is your dad still around? He's, I mean, he's alive. Yeah. He's not, he's not really around though. Him and I have, have a very sordid you know history together oh interesting can we get into it yeah of course is sorted just sexual i don't know i mean there's a lot of words i mean like you said we know each other there's a lot of words that i just use because i've heard them in movies mm-hmm. and then i think i'm just completely like the word terse i yes. just i don't know what it means i've been saying it for a long time uh um, I- I know it doesn't mean this, but I think of it as like a tight lipped, <laughs> like, like you're changing your lips. I think that's purse, not terse. Yeah. Well, terse. I just know like it's also jokes. A lot of words I knew from bits like mm-hmm. uh, there was a guy, Ben Boehm. Do you ever run across Ben Boehm comedian? In New yes. York? Yeah. Yeah. He did the uh, he did that hostile show before Hershon and I got it. Yeah. He's a he was a good guy. I don't know where he is, mm-hmm. if he's around, but I started with him or he was before me. But in Boston, he was around. But he had a joke. When I was new, I started when I was 18 and fresh out of high school. I didn't know anything about anything. And he said, I can't remember the joke, but he said, blowjob emporium in the joke. 
And for like 10 years, I thought Emporium was like a dirty word. I thought it meant like a whorehouse yeah. or whatever the fuck. And, and then I would see like Food Emporium and I'd be like, what? How do they just name it Food Emporium? That's crazy. I'm like, I thought that meant come or whatever. Right. Yeah, it was just a salacious way to sell deli meats. Yeah, because I just I've learned so much of just like picking things up from shows and movies and then just being like, okay, great. That word kind of means that. But the word terse, Don Gavin had a joke where he talks about being in the waiting room for too long and they don't go in order of importance. And he's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I'm next. But that guy with the hatchet in his arm seems a little terse. So I thought it meant like put out, which maybe it does. I think, yeah, it may I don't know. I worked with Don in Aruba, and that guy is one of my favorite human beings of all time. Oh, an amazing comedian. He's got an album, if you want to go laugh your ass off after this, called Live with the Manhattan. And uh, yeah. it got, he's amazing. I mean, him and I, like, we had a... I was actually newly not drinking at that point in Aruba. I think I was like three or four months not drinking, and Don is the exact opposite of that. He's just never going to stop. So it, we had, like, some real heart-to-heart moments about alcohol. We spent time in the airport together, like, before we each left Aruba, and then I ran into him at the stand, like, three months ago, and he couldn't know me less. Yeah, he's one of those guys that you gotta meet. Like, I started up there and it always I always wanted that guy to know me and like me and respect me you know how like in comedy you just there's so many guys you're just like I just would give anything for that guy to know my name yeah and it was one of those guys you'd have to be like remember we opened I opened for you I did the joke about the thing you complimented but eventually now (laughs) I think he's like come around and and knows me Um, that's awesome but so I'm all over the place now because I wanted to talk about your dad but so you don't you quit drinking now yeah I mean I I I originally did it as kind of a um, in solidarity with my wife when she was pregnant and just like, you know, you're not drinking. I also could probably use a break. I'm, you know, at the time I, I, I don't think I was at full capacity alcohol, like where, you know, I've gone through phases where I was like, you know, pedal to the metal, going crazy, drinking every day and just like raging. And then I'd kind of even out and be, you know, a quote unquote healthier drinker. But at that point, I was like, I just need seven months to kind of dry out regardless. And then after I was like, it's full vanity. I was like, well, I kind of like being thin and not hung over. This is great. Yeah. I mean, so you feel clear headed, clear eyed a little bit as much as you can with anxiety. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it's it's helped me. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I f- if I feel less anxiety. I think I just feel I feel less panicked. Like, so I have the anxiety, but it's a little bit more manageable. Whereas before, if I was, if it was post drinking, especially, cause I, I think you talked a lot about that on, on one of your albums, but like you couldn't deal with the anxiety that came after boozing. You, you drink to alleviate the anxiety and then it just, the floodgates open right afterwards. And that was the case with me is like the next day I'd be a shivering mess, double, you know, second guessing every single action, every word, who I spoke to, you know, wondering if I said anything shitty to a comic I looked up to or anything. You know, it's just like it just wasn't worth it. Yeah, completely. Those moments of like piecing together conversations and then being Mm -hmm. like, I think I said you're a god to Dave Attell and I'm not sure or whatever like whatever thing it is where you're like shit I think I said yeah. something one time this is so embarrassing I don't think I've ever even told this story but I was this is when I first started open for DePaulo like way back in 06 mm-hmm. and um, I was like taking notes for his joke he didn't ask me to but I was just like writing down jokes and I was drunk and I wrote like you could say this or this line's great and then like on the back I wrote best I've ever seen dot 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 and then like i purposely handed him the note folded with that on the side like i was kind of like oh whoops did i write best i've ever seen on there (laughs) and like he never like addressed it to be like what is it like i'm sure he maybe he read it and it meant a lot to him like i don't know i try to put myself in this place like maybe if a young comic handed me a note and it said that but in my mind i'd be like get out of here you fucking idiot (laughs) but i like wanted him to be like dude you're the best man yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. I have those fantasies all the time. I had kind of a moment like that drunk 
with Louie, weirdly enough, at Caroline's. This is right around Hurricane Sandy when he was hosting Saturday Night Live. Do you remember that when like everything was closed down and then things kind of started opening and Caroline's like ran a show when, you know, half the city's electricity was still off and they had like 15 people or something like that. This is. Sorry. <laughs> Bless you. I, I get nervous I, when I hear about hurricanes. The funniest part is I saw that sneeze coming for the last 35 seconds. Yeah, I was wondering. I was seeing my face in the monitor. I'm like, does he think I'm having like a really adverse effect to this story? Like I'm like I'm clutching my dress and just powering through. But um, this is how long ago this was. Stefano was hosting at Caroline's and I was just going just to get out of the house because everything had been shut down and we both had like dragon flies or snap dragons at Ruby Foo's before so we got like real real shit faced on like super girly drinks went to Caroline's I had no I wasn't on or anything like that but they were going to give me a spot and then at some point Chris ran over to me and he's shit faced hosting and he runs over and he's like hey dude we're gonna have to like you're next you were gonna be next but we're gonna push you back one and I'm like okay and he goes yeah because and he like did this, you know, over exaggerated head nod. And sure. I look and literally, I mean, five and a half inches from his face was Louie. So Louie probably heard everything he had said. And Louie at that time, top of his game, you know, everybody, everybody loved him, all that stuff. And he couldn't have been nicer where he was like, hey, man, I'm only going to do 10 minutes. Is that is that, you know, is that OK? And I think I said something like I was drunk, but I was like trying to be friends with him, I guess. And I was like. I was like, what are you fucking kidding me? And he goes, huh? And I'm like, I'm kidding. Do an hour. And he's like, I just saw him like try to process what I was doing. And I just immediately turned around and walked in the other direction. I couldn't face him. It sucks. And it's so embarrassing because you always think you're being fun. And I remember like years and years ago, like, oh, two, I was like two years in and I used to come down to New York and do bringer shows, which is when you have to bring Mm -hmm. people to get on stage. So that'd be like I would drive down with like four friends just to do a set at Stand Up New York. And I remember it was like Mark Marin was on the show. Oh, wow. And this is like 20 years ago. It was way before the podcast and everything. But I remember like he was like the guy closing the bringer show. And I remember being like this, uh, hey, uh, I'm opening for you tonight. I'm opening for <laughs> Mark Marin or something. And he was just like, yeah, okay. And I remember like then later... I'd be the guy closing a bringer show and they'd be like, cool to open for you. And I'd be like, shut up, you nerd. And then you're just like, oh, I was that guy. Like, the, you, yeah. There's so many jokes you made to these guys that were just like, what? Shut up. Dude, it's it's brutal because the more you go through it as your, you know, as the person that they were, you realize how absolutely brutal you were. Completely. <laughs> and just embarrassing. And then being like, I mean, I've told the story. I think I talked about it on a this podcast already, but like I saw Philip Seymour Hoffman at the bar one time and I walked up to him drunk and just started reciting lines from a movie he was in. <laughs> oh, no. And then I started being like, I'm friends with Patrice O'Neill. And he's like, I don't know who that is. Cause they were in like one scene together in 25th hour. <laughs> and there was anyways, the point is there was just so much like shame around like saying the dumbest shit, which when you're young, you're saying dumb shit anyway, even without the drinking. Right. Right. And then you have the green light, like booze gave you the green light to be like, no, all of your ideas are good. Completely. (laughs) We were just talking about that. I was talking to, without getting too weird, like other sober people. And they were just saying like, we were kind of sharing about our sobriety. And my friend was like, yeah, I just, when I was drinking, I had no good ideas. And I started (laughs) laughing so hard at the idea of like the things that you did when you were drunk started as ideas. So like an example of one of my ideas was to be like, I'm going to go jump on that person's windshield until it breaks. That was like an idea. I was like, guys, I got an idea. I'm going to take a shit on the floor in this house. That's my best idea I have. Um, Do you think that was an actual idea or was that just an impulse? No, I think that was, I think that I thought I was at, a toilet or something. I don't think I was yeah. like, this will be hilarious because I, I, I put on a company party once 
And I guess this this actually was an idea, but I was an office manager for an advertising company, like right when I first started comedy. And my job was to be this person, the CEO's personal assistant. I was the office manager. I also was his like realtor at one point. I had to like rent out his 2000 square foot apartment in Brooklyn. I, I had to, you know, start or organize all the holiday parties. And so I did this crazy holiday party. I put it together under this insane budget that should have never worked and of course i celebrated by getting blacked out the moment the party started and like an hour and a half in i was just pissing on the wall of the w oh my god yeah and people were like i think it's time like for you to go (laughs) and how old were you i was 24 yeah that's tough sometimes i think the drinking age should be like 30 Mm-hmm. And then it ends. It's like 30 to 40. It's like a purge. You can just go nuts in your 30s. And then that's I, I'm, it. I'm torn on that, though, because I didn't drink until I was 20, 21. Like, I, I literally did not drink in high school. I was that guy at fucking parties that played sports and drank at it like orange juice out of a carton. I was still wildly outgoing because I fancied myself as funny. But, you know, I I probably wasn't. But, you know, it was just I I, I think I picked up at such a pace and I didn't know what I was doing where everybody else that had been drinking since they were 13 was like easy there idiot you have to sip yeah I have a very similar story I did not drink through high school I started I first my first drink was in October of 2000 I know that because I went to Montreal to see Pearl Jam and my first (laughs) drink was a Midori Sour but I was the same way like I was pretty outgoing and had a good time in high school now I want to get into anxiety because I know you're like a severe anxiety guy yes you've gotten better I think I've got I've gotten a little bit better because and honestly, uh, thanks to you and a lot of the stuff that you talk about. And I've asked you for book recommendations that I've also picked up. And a lot of that stuff, it's 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 hard because it's like it. you need to have the constant reminder. You yes. know what I mean? It's like it's almost like I mean, we spoke a little bit about it before, but about, you know, mushrooms have also helped me quite a bit. But mushrooms also dissipate the lesson that you learn from the hallucination kind of fades after a while and that's why people do it again and then again after a while it's almost like you know a a redouching of your soul but there are times where i just like you know where i have it on lock or i think i do and then i get lazy with the upkeep and then it kind of piles back up yeah well that's first of all i'm glad to hear i was been helpful in any way but um, that's the thing is it's a part of you and it's weird. Like it's sort of like, I think Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this a little bit. Eckhart Tolle will talk about it. It's part of that wants to survive. It's like this, this thing inside of you that, um, a lot of them say to kind of embrace as like a, its own being like a, like a child that you hug and hold close to you, but like right. it wants to survive. So like it will come back. Anxiety doesn't just permanently go away. You right. have to constantly be mindful and through meditation and connecting with friends or religion or whatever it is or mushroom. Like you have to stay on top of that shit because it wants to survive and it will survive. It is part of you. It doesn't go. It's not like a thing that you just defeat and you're like, great, that's that's cleared up. Right. Um, I, it's also not something I knew what it was until like late in college, even after college, because I, I come from like an Irish Catholic family and I didn't know that mental illness runs rampant in my family until like five years ago. I mean, my, my grandpa put like his service revolver in his mouth in front of all eight of his kids and his wife. And I didn't find out about that until half a decade ago. Wow. That's <laughs> the most Irish thing ever. Yeah, right. I He went to an asylum, got doped up and like laid on the couch for two years. And this is just like, I feel like I'm, you know, gay for having a stomach ache of anxiety my whole life. And I have nobody to talk to because nobody let me know that that's normal. Wait, so did he pull the trigger? Did he kill himself? No, no, no? He, he did not. No. he. So he put it in his mouth and threatened to kill himself in front of all of his kids. And then I guess I, I, I. I haven't heard the full details of the story still through my dad. He's never told me. My older sister kind of gave me the cliff notes and basically said, I think one of his partners came and like talked him out of it. And then they checked him into a hospital. And he, you know, back then it was probably the 70s, maybe 60, you know, late 60s. And he they didn't know what medicine was or how to really, you know, treat certain things. So they just doped him the fuck up. Jesus, I'm so grateful and I want to get into another topic along these lines. I'm so grateful that we are in a time where there's tons of books and information and like neuroscience about mm-hmm. mental health. 
um, because that would have blown to even be around like 30 years ago, 25 years ago, where people were just like, I don't know. I think you're gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Just like uh, I've gotten really into uh, stoicism, which I talked about on last week's episode. Mm. I've gotten like really into this sort of religious. Sorry, my nose is running all of a sudden. I blew, I, I sneeze, and now I got the drizzles. I feel like a cokehead here, but <laughs> that's quite all right. Um, but I'm getting really into stoicism, which is hard for me to say. But there's a book called um, "The Guy: A Guide to the Good Life" by William Irvine, which I highly recommend. I'm in the middle of reading it now, and their whole thing is all about gratitude and only controlling what you can control. It's very similar, a lot of stuff that's similar to Buddhism, but mm-hmm. they're a big part of their thing is negative visualization. So to kind of wake up in the morning and spend a little time, like a little time, don't ruminate on it, but the idea that anything, all the bad things that could happen, and then you kind of allow yourself to think about that, and then you feel grateful for that those things haven't happened. And the reason I, that made me think of that is like the idea that we could, and they talk about this in the book, like imagine being your, uh, your what do you call it, ancestors who didn't mm-hmm. even have windows in their fucking house or they had to right. wait till the summer to have fruit. You know what I mean? Right. It's just like, wow. Yeah. This, and it just allows you to feel grateful. Like, I'm glad I have an air conditioner and a blanket or all that shit. So, 100%. Um, yeah. And, th- and you can think about like the idea of like, my wife could get fucking hit by a car and die tonight. And you take a moment to be like, think about what that would be like. And then you can come back to be like, hey, great. My wife's in the other room. I'm going to go give her a yeah. big hug and be grateful for her being here. Maybe. See, I I feel like that would be really useful for me. Well, that was a loud firework. Uh, I feel like that would be really useful for me if I could get off of the negative feelings. Like sometimes I do that where I give it a little a little room to breathe and I do contemplate in an effort to kind of, you know, flush it out of my system. But it'll linger for a while. And sometimes with my brain, especially I'm I'm prone to jumping ahead and thinking about future events that know that have yet to happen. And of course, every future event then leads to a decision and my brain takes the negative route. So each decision, I then go negative and then more negative and it's spider webs into like a full on event that is made up in my head, but I'm now like wearing it (laughs) as, you know, almost like a heavy blanket all day. Yeah. That's what I've had through most of my life. Exactly. And I feel like we have very similar kind of anxieties and panic, but now I guess maybe that's, it's actually nice to hear because it makes me think like, Oh, that's actually good that I've gotten to a place in my life mentally that I am, I am able to think about bad things happening without ruminating on them. Mm -hmm. But uh, the thing that's changed for me the most is my therapist saying, and this getting through this idea, and like you said earlier, alluded to, is like you have to hear these things a million times. But the idea of like my thoughts are not reality, and fear is just fear. I've had to make that my fucking, you know, uh, whatever you call it, my not omen. What's that fucking word? Mantra. Mantra. Yeah. And yeah. I had to make it my just when I was sounding smart, I sound like an idiot. <laughs> um, my mantra of like that's just fear, and like. And also going back to the stoicism and Buddhism to some degree is like, I can't control that. That's something I can't control of what happens to whatever. There's only like with having a child, you can be the best father you can be, but there's a lot of stuff you can't control if they get sick or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're kind of like the more I'm, you know, I've I've been a dad now for like 11 months, but you're, you know, and my son is now becoming a person like he's starting to be mobile. He has a personality. He's just about to start walking. So that's going to be a new, a completely new thing. But being a parent is kind of just waiting for a disaster. Like everybody has a disaster story. You know what I mean? Like when I was a kid, I threw a deflated beach ball at my sister's front bike tire and she did a front flip over the handlebars and like cracked her chin open. And that's just one injury that we experienced that my parents were just, you know, it just got sprung on them. And there's, there's countless others, you know, everybody's been hurt. Everybody's had emergencies. Everybody has those events happen. So I'm now for an anxious guy like me, to know that those things are <laughs> are bound to happen, it's both 
it's both good for the mental health because it does really, you know, it it teaches impermanence and you have to let things go and it's out of your control and it's you you have to be in the now and really appreciate and enjoy exactly what's happening, but it does have a lingering bit of like you know, oh shit, I got to be really be on my toes. Yeah, well that's where it's like there's that balance of being as cautious as possible but also not holding on to the steering wheel too tight because it's like right. then you turn into a helicopter parent or whatever the hell and then you make the kid too anxious which is what I experienced a little bit is this mm -hmm. idea of overprotection where then it becomes this thing of like now because you're that way the kid becomes that way my mother was so anxious and OCD that now I feel that way I'm always freaking yeah. out but that is an interesting thing is like that's just part of life and I know you're, you're using the word disaster because it's a good word, but it's also like, well, was it a disaster? There's, your sister's still alive. She survived. You know, yeah, the totally. kid's going to break his leg, but he'll be fine or whatever. But right. I have similar thoughts. I think about that all the time. Removed from stoicism, just my natural brain is like, I'm going to bleed again. There's no way I've bled <laughs> for the last time. Like at some point I'm going to be bleeding. That's weird. I'm like, what are the chances... I'm like not going to get stitches again. Maybe I will. Maybe right. I won't. I mean, or stuff like that. Like I'm going to have a headache again. I'm going to. And then ultimately you're like, we are going to die, which is yeah, strange. It is. It, it's really strange, but it, I don't know. It, I, I've almost made peace with that more than life, <laughs> which is a weird thing because, you know, I, death to me. And this is, you know, of course, this is me saying this right now and it could change in a week, but it, it feels like a vacation. Like, that's almost like a nice thing where it's like, all right, this is all over. I will never have anything to worry about again. Obviously, I have way more to live with, live for now with with a son and a family and all that stuff. And and I would if I had the conscious ability to miss what I'm missing out, I obviously would. But, you know, the idea of all of worry just dissipating and all of this, you know, earthly shit just being done for a part of the, a part of that is relaxing. Yes, I get that. And it's a weird feeling. It reminds me of uh, Gary Gullman has the great joke uh, where he says, the thing about life is it's every day. <laughs> it's such like a great bit. And like one of the best jokes ever of like that, is, like it is like the idea of like, uh, having to put my shoes on and fucking wipe my ass. But this is like stoicism where you think about dying that you mm. never get to do any of those things again. So even the most remedial, another word, I don't know what it means, even the most <laughs> whatever tasks, like you think about contemplate that there'll be a time where you go to the dentist for the last time. Yeah. Like if someone was like, you're going to die, like you're never going to go to the dentist again. Part of you would be like, Oh, Bummer. Like no one wants to go to the dentist, but like there's something yeah. about the feeling of leaving and there'll be the last time you turn the air conditioner on or, or say goodnight to your wife or whatever. Right. So it does contemplating that kind of stuff does make you grateful of like, man, I kind of can't wait to go to the dentist knowing mm -hmm. that eventually I'll die and never get to do anything again. Bobby Kelly has that really great bit that made me think of that. That And I think uh, Aziz did a version of it on his special, but where he was saying like, I have 30 summers. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, and it's such a beautiful thing to like really it just completely captures everything you think about when when you put it like that. And it's only the number 30. It's not 100. It's not 80. You know, it's not it's nothing high up. It's 30. That just like it, that could really, you know, bring you down to earth. Yeah, it fucks with the, it can fuck with it. It's interesting because I'm kind of saying these things about imagining death and contemplating death. But it's only because I've managed to get to a much better place mentally because these are the same things that before in my 20s would fuck me up for like three weeks of like, mm -hmm. God, I don't want to die and bird flu and all this shit. So I guess it, it makes me feel grateful in this moment that I've gotten to this point. But that reminds me of another conversation with Shane Moss, another comic who does you know, a lot of a podcast talks about science and mushrooms. He's a and smart all stuff. dude. Yeah, very smart guy. But I remember years ago when we were hanging out and drinking, I was like, God, it doesn't. I was always this guy when I was drinking. I was like, doesn't it suck that we're going to die? Like right in the middle of a hang, I would always say that. <laughs> and I always remember this. It, was, it felt so wise at the moment. He's like, it would suck worse if we didn't. And <laughs> just in that moment, the thought of being like 280 and going 
to the dentist for the five millionth time or whatever, or just being old <laughs> and your bones dying. Like you're like, I guess it is better that we do die. Yeah. Oh, dude, the, the book Tuck Everlasting did that for me. Like that, that was like a book we had to read in fourth grade summer or whatever. It was about a family that drank from a stream and they are now stuck and like locked in the age where they drank it and just it, they can't die, all that stuff. And they had all, it, there was the whole lesson was just like, you know, embrace mortality. It's a beautiful thing. It is a fleeting, almost shooting star moment that we get to be, you know, experience life. And it's, you know, if you living forever is just not all that it's cracked up to be or what you may think it might be. No, and not just that we get to live. We get to live. Now, this is up for debate now because I think social media is destroying the fabric of our brains and society and all this shit. But we also we do get to live in a time where like most of the time we're sleeping in air conditioning. If it's hot and heat, if it's cold, we have blankets, we have you know, TV and books and we have access to a lot of information and with the positive side of the phone is I can text with a lot of people. I can keep in touch with a lot of people. Um, yeah. I'm trying to do my best to, I deleted Twitter off my phone, but then after a day of that, I could, I realized I can just go on the internet browser and look at Twitter. <laughs> so it's like, Oh fuck, I'm back to how, how are yeah. you with social media? Are you obsessed? Are you in there? Is it a problem or are you managed to be okay with it? Oh, it's a total problem. It's uh, I mean, I'm I'm locked in. I have a very and this has grown over time. It wasn't always my my problem, but I have a very bad case of caring too much what people think, especially especially my peers like comedians. I mean, I am I am constantly making up conversations that other comedians are having about me you know, all the time. And, and none of them are positive. It's always negative. And it's always just secretly what I feel about myself or what I'm worried that people will, you know, find out about my actual shattered personality. Sure. Yeah. I completely agree. First of all, I think you're great. Uh, <laughs> big fan. And, um, but yeah, no, I have the same thing all the time, constantly having arguments. I'm worried about what everybody thinks, which is a losing battle. It's something I'm consciously, mm working on um and it's no way to live but that's what draws you to social media to see what people are saying and if people are saying things and uh yeah it's it's horrible and i i have these moments i tweeted something like this recently but i'm like i already know that if i'm fortunate enough to die on a deathbed of like saying goodbye to friends and family and and looking back on my life my biggest regret will be the time that I spent on social media and also the time I spent worrying about what people who aren't even really in my life are thinking about me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's no, there's no way we're going to be appreciative of, of like what Instagram did for us. Right. I mean, and Instagram is the best one. I know. Instagram, at least I'm like, I take good photos and I'm sharing joy. I mean, Twitter <laughs> is nothing but fucking garbage. It's it's super evil. And even like I mean, even the positive, it's so vitriolic and everybody is so aggressive and so angry. And it can really it, it for me, I shouldn't say for anybody else, but it like poisons my well. Like I can I can read just a few things back and forth, different takes on certain political, social, whatever. And it's all cookie cutter. You know, it exists anyway, but then you reaffirm it by re- by reading it. And it just sours me. And it sucks. I don't know why I do it. It's almost like digital cutting. Like I'm doing it to feel something. It's a perfect analogy. It's exactly right. It's like you're like, you know, shit is on there. You know, shit's happening. And it makes me sick to even be part of it. And that's why I felt so good about deleting it. And then a bunch of shit came up. And so I'm like, let me check that out. I got to hear about this. And uh, it's gross. And the only way it may, I have such fantasies about just jumping on my phone and smashing it to pieces and like <laughs> quitting comedy and like moving to Wales. Like I went oh, yeah. hiking last year in Wales and Sarah and I were just like, this is amazing. I just want to buy like an old brick house with a little tube chimney thing and some a billow mm. of smoke and a big fluffy dog. And has I, this, I, I has this made you think of uh, has this made you think of like commune? Like or or anything like that or like get the hell out. 
Yeah, I mean, like the I, I hear about like you know retreats and Zen Buddhist things where they hit you with a stick and you, whatever. I'm <laughs> like, that sounds great to me to go and like silent retreat for a month or whatever and just right cleanse myself of this. The problem is, Sarah and I always joke about this. When you're in a relationship and you do that, your spouse is always like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> like something seems it never feels good for the spouse to be like. And I'm like, right. no, no, it's not you. It's social media. But like no one's ever like, yeah, our marriage is going great. I'm going to go take a 90 day. Don't talk to anybody. <laughs> retreat. Yeah. I mean, it's also them. That's but that's like so th I've been wrestling with that as well, because social media, you know, I'm trying my best to now post and then get the fuck off and Same. like don't be so accessible. But part of me, again, is like I pride myself on trying to on working really hard and being accessible to the people that listen and like my stuff and wanting to you know keep them engaged and being a good person by just communicating with these people because I think it's you know it's like fair trade I don't feel above anybody if somebody tells me that what I do means something to them I want to say hey thanks that means a lot but then the trade-off is you know everybody that calls me you know a lib cuck retard or whatever also has that much access to me so it's it's also weird juggling it with a kid because i have i have a son and a wife who truly have unconditional love for me like they they love me for who i am my kid has no idea that i have a single fault he is just super into me as his dad and i'll look at this perfect baby that has this love for me and then i'll go on social media in search for love right right yeah that's fascinating i do the same exact thing like my wife is in love with me and we share a life and a soul and we sit here and it's like beautiful and the same thing i'm like look what this fucking guy said look right. at this like, it's just like <laughs> what it's it's insane and then even like like everything the positive dissipates so quickly and the negative lingers where i have yeah. like emails from this podcast i have emails that are like the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me, like long, thoughtful emails, which I appreciate, but it's, it's quick. I'm like, wow, that's really beautiful. <laughs> Anyways, let me go, uh, whatever, go do something. <laughs> and then someone will be like, yeah, you fucking suck. You think you're Larry David, you fucking be shit or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, like I just ruminate on that ruminate. I mm -hmm. only kind of know what it means. I'll just think <laughs> about it for, years like there are like tweets that i remember from like six years ago where i'm like you son yeah. of a bitch well because I, I you know and i think you're you're exactly the same is that i'm i i expose myself online like and i've done that for better or worse my whole comedy careers i grew up listening to opie and anthony and tough crowd and all that stuff and everybody preached honesty and being raw and being just so open about your faults that it's like that's what real comedy is so i just did that and then i realized i was giving the keys to my insecurities to psychopaths uh, that's exactly right and i i wondered like do you ever think i'm like Man, I wonder if I could do it over again if I wouldn't talk about being a drunk and having herpes and being insecure <laughs> and all this stuff of like maybe I could have just been like a a Stephen Wright or Joe Mackey who's like there's no personal right. stuff but just brilliant joke writers. But it's hard. I don't know. You're probably like me. It's hard not for me not to just be like, yeah, here's what's going on with me. I don't know. It's scary. like, and right. I think part of that's like my anxiety is I'm just like, let me just tell everybody about it and maybe someone will have some advice for me. That's yeah. kind of been well, my thought process. <laughs> That's perfect. And Marin has this really great quote where he said, uh, stand-up comedy is the way for a comedian to control why people are laughing. You know, where it's like, so it's not, it's not, you know, what they're laughing at. It's, they're always laughing at us, but it's like, it's why, you know, we're giving them the information to laugh at us. So we're, we're kind of siphoning out what we feel is okay for them to laugh at. So we can kind of control the environment a little better. Interesting. Yeah. It's totally, it's funny. Cause did you listen to Seinfeld on Marin? I'm, I'm like three quarters through. It's tough to listen to pods, man. I'm just, you know, I'm neck deep in fucking kid shit all day. So it's it's right. difficult to just be like, sit this one out for an hour. Yeah, I got yeah. to listen to Jerry. Well, they talk a little bit about what makes you funny. And Jerry sticks with his thing of like, if you're funny, you're funny. And it, it's a little frustrating. 
Yeah. Because Mark wants to talk a little more, I guess, intellectually or scientifically about it. But when you really think about it, you're like, it's definitely uh, clearly a defense mechanism of like that old thing when you're a kid, like, let me make fun of this before they can make fun of this. Right. Well, he had that great line. And so I got to the part where he talked about his parents being orphans, which I never knew. And then he had that great line where he was talking about how he was like, no, they wanted to live their life and they told me to live mine. Like where he had almost an isolated childhood. And it's like, oh, there it is. There, there it is. There's everything. Yeah, that's the thing, too, with Jerry. You're like, you certainly you're smart enough to recognize that that would have some sort of effect on you. Your parents right. being really distant, which it seems like that's what we have in some way, that that kind mm. of Irish, just not physical distance, but maybe emotional distance. Yeah, totally. My parent, my mom became communicative and open about her feelings uh after my parents got a divorce, which was during college. So it took maybe until I was 20, even 25, 26, 27, around that time for my mom and I to sit down and her to apologize for a lot of how she handled the, my childhood. Cause she was like, you know, it, I, I got hit as a kid, you know, not like overwhelmingly. I didn't go to schools with, you know, welts on uh, school with like welts on my back or black eye or anything like that. But that was how I was, how I was punished. You know, I got hit by both of my parents and only my mom has since spoken about how that was an incredibly wrong thing for her to do. And it was a byproduct of how she came up and, you know, she just did some soul searching and kind of got to the bottom of her personal trauma and, you know, opened up to me about that. And I've, I've never been more appreciative of anybody in my entire life than that. Like I love that she had the willingness to do that. Wow. I mean, that is like powerful. Because yeah, did was she in therapy? Did a therapist tell her to do that, or did she just do that on her own? I I don't know at the time. To be honest, she may have been in therapy, but I think you know she was married to my father for twenty five years, and both of them, you know, my dad is a staunch, still to this day, does not believe in therapy. Like my dad doesn't believe in therapy so much that he went to therapy with my younger sister and mother. And within three minutes was screaming three inches from the therapist's face about how much he doesn't believe in therapy. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my lineage, but my mother grew up again, you know, repressed Irish Catholic. She went to, to Catholic school her entire life life and like the Catholic school where like the nuns would hit them. So she had corporal punishment both in school and at home. She was getting hit by her mother, you know, so all this stuff kind of subconsciously influenced her parenting because I think she set out trying to be different, but without the help of of therapy while she was parenting or or even getting to the bottom of where that stuff came from. It, you know, it it creeped out. Wow. That is like so fascinating to me to like have a parent that's like in the dream in some ways for a lot of people to have maybe i'm projecting to have a parent <laughs> come up and be like i'm really sorry that we did this this way i mean did that help yeah. your anxiety at all did you feel any kind of relief or just emotion like i feel like i would start sobbing if that happened if my mother did that i did i mean i'm a big crier i cry a lot Hell so yeah. you know I, I mean i that's one good thing about social media is i am constantly watching you know videos of of somebody ringing the cancer bell for the last time or like a soldier coming home you know that kind of stuff i am just you know tear porn i'm constantly watching but i i remember it meant a lot to me it was everything and now thinking back on it and having years to process what that means for her to both do that what it meant for our relationship and how we've progressed since and what and the fact that my father has not done that and I've asked him to and I've and I've you know, and we've had blowout fights and and really just long stretches of not talking mixed in with violent encounters and all this stuff. And he just he refuses to acknowledge any kind of really anything, any 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 dismiss any part in why I'm fucked up. Wow. But that it's interesting because that still seems to me somehow like maybe I'm wrong but somehow positive to even like have it out with your father to have like a, that you have it in you to confront your father is really impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's well, no, go ahead. I, I mean, I've, I've set out and this has been my whole life. There are two things that I set out to do is one. I was, I, I 
this is true. I don't want to be fat. Like <laughs> that is like a big motivator in my life because my whole dad's side of the family are just like over six three and like two fifty plus, just absolute behemoth Irishmen. And so I wanted to break the chain with that, and I also wanted to break the chain with healthy conversation about our feelings. And I wanted to like, I think that's part of why I do it on podcasts. It's part of why I do it on comedy because like I, hopefully my son is like the pendulum kind of reswings in the middle a little bit. And he kind of writes the ship a bit because I think I took what my dad and mom went through and I slammed it the complete opposite way in a very extreme speed but you know that seems good i mean it seems like progress at least and it's good that you're connected it seems like you're connected emotionally to these things which seems like a positive yeah yeah i think so i mean i've i've been to therapy i'm trying to go back uh also now actually to your fella i emailed him offered to send him a tape if he needed to see it (laughs) but uh (laughs) i I was gonna ask are you an alan guy but i guess not so I went to the other Alan, other comedies Alan, who was like the open mic Alan. <laughs> I got I got wrecked to him uh, through Justy Dodge like years ago, and uh, he was great. He he helped me through a lot. I had I have I had, and I'm actually re-experiencing uh, a bunch of anger stuff. Yeah. So, but at the time. It, it was manifesting in destructive ways. So I was going back to like high school shit where I was punching holes and fucking, you know, the door and stuff. And it's like, I, I can't be doing that if I'm in my mid to late twenties and I'm trying to be a grown up human being. It's like, it's not something I, I felt comfortable with. So I think once I just like punched through the bathroom door and like pulled out my hand and immediately texted the therapist. Jesus. That's like a scene out of a movie. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, it, it, Help me. I, I think just being willing, you know, that that was huge. By the way, now I'm not crying. I don't know what's going on. My <laughs> eyes are like itchy or burning. I don't know what the hell is there something in my bedroom. Maybe it's the vibe. Like, yeah, you have you have allergies. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. There's allergies in my bedroom. I don't know what's going on. I got a lot of anxiety. It could just be anxiety symptoms. But this this room I'm in is also like 400 degrees. Oh, this one also is. Yeah, I'm sweating my ass. I think that might be I might just have sweat in my eyeballs from sitting in a hot room because I can't turn the AC on. Um, But that's interesting, too. I think about this a lot because I've been learning a lot about um, formative years, which I keep talking about. And this thing of, I heard this quote, if it's hysterical, it's historical. So when we're reacting to anything, whether you're getting angry or punching a hole in the wall or crying or whatever it is, your your reaction was built in in your first like six years of your life. You're reacting the way you learned to react then. So I guess maybe just open questioner, but like, do you have stress or anxiety or excitement about how you have a kid now who's about to be one happy first father's day by the way oh thank you man yeah it's it was weird day so i played golf this morning at the golf course because i'm i'm home i'm in my hometown but i grew up next to my wife so we you know being here i'm i'm in where you know i'm where i grew up it's crazy and then i played golf today randomly at the golf course my father and i used to go to which was the only place we ever hung out i picked up golf just to be like pals with my dad wow (laughs) and then on my first on my first father's day i played golf there and then you know had a nice day with my kid wow so but do you feel the pressure are you aware that like your child is now in their formative years and like when their your kid is 48 and uh you know someone cuts in front of him in line and he's like you fucking dumb cunt or whatever <laughs> like that's that's happening now he's learning that yeah. like today is that pressure or something you think about or like what I think about that. It's, I don't have a kid and I think about that. <laughs> it's definitely something I think about. It's also more so now that he's becoming a true sponge. You know, I mean, he is his eyes are open. He's barely blinking and he is absorbing everything. And there's mannerisms that I do and not realize that he's already mimicking. So I, you know, when he started doing that, I immediately, you know, even jumping into this, I knew I wanted to be a better father than my dad was. I knew I wanted to be, you know, like wildly communicative, open about everything. I wanted to, you know, I want to have truthful conversations about our our past, you know, as 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 a family and like in terms of mental illness and some of the stuff that we have to deal with and I want to be really open and honest with them and you know 
but the like you said, this is the formative formative time. So you want to you want to almost instill those lessons without confusing them with words. You know, is if I'm just if I just lay a bunch of stories on my fucking three year old kid, he's just going to be horrified and not understand what I'm talking about. But if I show him that I can argue with his mother by talking and actually like, you know, progressing through thought and getting and and open communication and, and with love and understanding, then that is the lesson. Right. You know, so I, I, I'm just trying my best to, you know, to live how I wish my uh, my dad did or how I wish my environment was. That's great. And I think that's all you can do. I mean, it goes back to like the thing you learn when you're a kid of like treat other people the way you want to be treated. I guess it's like raise your child the way you wish you had been raised. And mm. it's also, again, goes back to acceptance that like no matter what you do that your child is going to have problems as a child and as an adult. And that's just part of the nature of life. You just hope their problems aren't too big by not by being a good father that they're not, they don't murder somebody or whatever, which is (laughs) feels like it's pretty easy to instill. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think like, I, I I think if I came out okay, like I really do. I, I I like the person I am. I think I have good values, and I think I treat people well. I think if if my mother is is obviously we have a great relationship now, but if my father was like willing to talk and and have real conversations like that and ha- and instill actual change instead of like then just you know rewinding and it's the same issue a week later or two weeks later or whatever, I I feel like. I'd be fine. I wouldn't have any, I wouldn't be pissed about my childhood, but now I'm pissed because I have like, you know, no one to really make it to rectify it with. Yeah. That's what's weird. And I I talk about this a lot on this show is that you can improve your adult life through whatever it is, therapy or uh, asserting yourself or confronting and acceptance and meditation or prayer or, or Zoloft or whatever it is, but you can't fix whatever was lacking in your childhood. There's just no way to get that back. Like even if your father apologized to you and your obviously your mother already apologized to you and you have a wife and you raise your son really well and you go to church or you meditate, whatever it is you do, you still are going to have that thing that is missing in you or hurting in you because that's what happened when you were a child. You can't undo it. It's a bummer it's in, but, it's in it's inescapable yeah it's in there and that's what like we talked about earlier with your anxiety never dies or leaves you it wants to survive it's like all that pain from childhood is right. still there yeah i mean i i think it, so my anxiety is something that i've learned to you know it's day to day you learn to live with it and you you know i i change behavior based on how i'm feeling that day or i change you know how I outlet. Sometimes if I'm feeling really fucked up, I'll, I'll exercise. I mean, I've attempted meditation before, but it didn't stick. And that's probably, you know, deep seated excuses I'm, I'm making because I don't want to necessarily commit. There's all those things that play, you know, come into play. But I, you know, what, what happens with me is sometimes my anxiety spirals so out of control that it turns to depression and that depression then is locked in for a bit. You know, I my rebound is quicker because of the tools I learned in therapy, but it still is like, you know, it's it's a re, it's like you ever see Never Ending Story and he's walking the horse through yeah. that, you know, the quicksand and shit like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it feels when I'm like overwhelmed with anxiety and I'm just now it's turned into full blown depression. It's like HIV to AIDS. Yes. except for sad. Yeah, you get caught in a thought loop that you just can't get out of. And that's, that's where meditation and mindfulness is really helpful because you can recognize like, Oh, I'm on this loop and my thoughts are, you can at least maybe not break them, but recognize them, which starts the process of breaking those Mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, which I had another thought about that. And now I forget it. I was, I was too mindful of that thought (laughs) to remember this thought. Oh fuck. It was something good too it was like juicy was m- wait what were you saying right before that your anxiety goes into depression oh this is what i was going to say is when you have um anger or sometimes even anxiety of what it is is you're stuck on you're reliving the thing that made you 
angry. Like, um, this is something I just learned recently listening to one of these interviews or read, maybe I read it, but like when you get, if you're mad all day, like this morning, for example, I was meditating, doing my morning meditation, and like the FedEx guy came and just held the the ringer down, the doorbell, like, <laughs> like that. And I was meditating, so it made it extra. You think it would make it better, but it like made right. it extra mad because I was like in this like really calm place, and he just held it down, and I wanted to be like, "You fucking asshole! You don't have to fucking like." It just made me angry, and I sat back down to continue meditating. And I had this realization or remembered that when you stay mad at something, the thing is gone. The initial anger is like an impulse. Mm. He's holding the doorbell down. What the? F- why would you do that? That is like five seconds long. When you stay mad at it, it's because you're re-remembering that angry <laughs> moment. Like you're reigniting the fire yourself. That's you doing that. That's not him. Yeah. And so that's what happens when we get into these like funks is like we're rethinking about the thing that was bumming us out, whether it be death or your mother yelling at you or your wife, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So she burned dinner like you're just keep going back (laughs) into your head about the thing, the actual moment. And it goes for the good, too. Like when you do a release your special or you shoot your special, the feeling of accomplishment only actually lasts like five minutes. Then you're just recalling. Hey, I did that special. Yeah. That was cool. Remember I did that, you know? Yeah. Oh, I tried like hell to recall as much as I possibly could, but it's it's like, you know, the same as social media. It dissipated really quickly and then the panic of of promoting it or or the cuts and having to edit it and, you know, all that all those things pile up. Something that Vecchione said on your podcast that I really loved and it put into words something that I experienced and didn't know was operating from a deficit. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Was, I mean, I I loved that he said that I didn't realize that I was doing a lot of uphill shit for no reason where it's like you achieve something or even set out to do something. And then you just start listing those things that you have to get done. And it's already feels overwhelming and the the weight of the of everything can overtake you. And, I, you know, but instead just trying to start from from zero and i mean dude where where's the joy that was like an a daily reminder in my calendar for like two years because i was just trying to like <coughs> yeah this should there should be joy i'm doing what i love i can support my family telling fucking jokes like it's it's ridiculous to even fathom but like i need to constantly remind myself about that instead of like you know, just stay on what I'm not doing and, you know, who doesn't respect me, which again is like figments of my own imagination. But it's like that stuff of like, I need these people who I look up to, to vocally respect me. (laughs) And it makes no sense. Right. No. And it's, it, it just torches you. And like, you have moments, I have moments like you talked about with like, dying the idea that like dying seems somewhat appealing because you can let go of all that and it's like you can Mm -hmm. accomplish that i think through meditation but even if you don't want to do a meditation every day just taking a moment to like focus on your breath to like exhale and feel it and to just be like nothing matters right now in this moment if i just focus on my breath it doesn't matter who thinks what about me and that those things obviously come right back right but the idea is to try to at least get it for 10 minutes and that slows you down later on in the day. But if you just sort of let go of all that stuff, which is easier said than done for just a few moments, you can at least have a few moments of peace, which hopefully people can do that right now. (laughs) Um, Well, I think, I think you may have said it or I, I may have heard it elsewhere, but it was, it was, um, Fuck, now I completely forget what I was just going to say. Never mind. Move oh, on. Fuck, I blew it. It's not like I, I want anything where someone says something, I said something brilliant, I need in there. Uh, we got to start to wrap up, by the way. I'm not looking at my phone. This is the recorder, and I paranoidly check to make sure it's recording. I don't want you to think I'm reading text over here mid-interview. Oh, no. No um, worries. But I feel like we could uh, do another one of these. I feel like we didn't even get to really scratch into a lot of stuff. I know. No, I agree. You're you're an easy talk, Joe. Oh, thanks. Always well, I, have been. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Well, yeah, I remember meeting you with her, Sean, and you guys were interning at Broadway. 
Yeah, dude, I did everything for that club when I first started. I passed out flyers in Times Square. I sat people. I answered phones. I like blew Eric Hansen. It was, you know, <laughs> I did. I did everything to get on stage there. I forgot about that guy. It's funny those early days. Well, that goes back to gratitude of like just feeling. Um, like we talked about like shooting a special is such a good feeling, but even just gratitude like i said earlier like just getting out of bed having two feet that work and and taking a yeah. piss like i was talking about earlier just like eventually we'll take our last piss like that'll make you grateful for <laughs> urinating the idea that like yeah. at some point you're like this is my last piss ever which is weird i don't know if that's depressing or or you know inspiring or whatever but that's that's where i'm at right now well my my last piss is probably going to be just all blood <laughs> yeah, I mean that's how that's the way it goes. Um, I mean this could be our last podcast. Who knows? This could be the last time sitting with a hot computer on my lap. I don't know why I'm not at a desk. I'm just slouching in bed with a hot computer on my balls. It's but, where you feel most comfortable. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I wanted to be in bed with you. Well, thanks for doing the pod. What's the name of the special? Tell, plug the special. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's called Life Begins on YouTube, and uh, I mean I got I did it a little differently. You know, I didn't. Uh, I'm behind all you guys. So you guys have done hours. You've done half hours and stuff like that. I've never really done. I've done stand up on TV like once, you know, just for access or whatever. I was going to do a late night, but, you know, long story short, that fell through, which was a wild source of anxiety and anger for several years because I kind of got ghosted. It was this whole situation. But um, so I wanted to do a special, but also you know, I kind of wanted to give myself the out where I could do my first real special with a network, you know, later on. Yeah. So this one, I made it kind of, you know, a special thing where I got a bunch of my comedy heroes. I got Colin Quinn, Jim Norton, Bobby Kelly, uh, Rich Voss and Keith Robinson to be a part of the special and kind of have do interstitial interviews where they just absolutely lace into me and trash me. Yeah, which it's is great. my favorite thing they do. I watched it. It's great. And Sagalo's in there and he was great. Uh, <laughs> He's so funny. He man. was really fun. I mean, it's such a naturally funny guy and uh it's awesome and it looks awesome so everyone go check it out and i love the story you told me about you forgot to do the bit that it's named after <laughs> oh second. yeah totally i i like so weirdly enough my father who i hadn't spoken to at that point maybe in like five or six months he still hasn't met my son but uh yeah which is you know maybe next time but he <laughs> showed up to my special without being it like I did not invite him I would have told him not to come he didn't tell anybody and he ambushed me at my special and basically said what's up to me I, two minutes before I went on stage for Jesus. my special and I have to give myself credit because I really showed up for myself I put that all out of my head I got past it I got you know all the anger all the like you know it's like almost poison treats where you can then run into different corners of your brain and like really melt down. And then you, and then I totally self-sabotage, but I just locked all that shit up, stayed focused, really delivered like the first set really great. And then I got off stage and I was like, Oh, I didn't do the title bit of the special. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you have to go back on stage? Or you just got it on the second show. I just got it on the second show. Both, both were sold out. I like, I, I, I did a shitload of promotion to get people in seats because I'm so unknown but you know uh, both ended up being sold out so I knew the joke would work and uh, I wasn't you know too worried about it that's awesome well go check it out yeah. everybody it's on YouTube it's free and uh, is there an album or what yeah yeah life begins also that so the the special has about 32 minutes of stand-up and i wanted it to be almost like a business card for the full hour uh, album so you know it, that album's out there to be streamed on pandora itunes whatever you want and all the additional clips are also up on my youtube so my cat and comedy on youtube i have a ton of stuff up there and you know putting out even more hell yeah go check it out well thanks for doing it buddy that was great i've been wanting to have you on because i know you're a fucking nut and uh, <laughs> yeah. no, it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. That's Mike Cannon. I, I appreciate it, man. I'm a big fan of yours, and you know that. But you were my first favorite comedian when I when I started doing stand up comedy, and uh, you know it's been awesome just to watch you take off. Oh, thanks, man. That means that that'll mean a lot to me for ten seconds, and then I'll think you hate me. <laughs> um, all right, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.